Welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast, brought to you by Limitless Estates, where Kyle and Lolita talk to top experts and seasoned passive investors in the business to help provide clarity and key insights to keep you safe on your journey to financial freedom. Our goal is to help you get educated on how to create passive income for you and your family using real estate as your vehicle. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes and leave a rating and written review to help us grow and reach more listeners. Now, here are your hosts, Kyle and Lolita. Hey, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast. I'm your co-host, Lolita, also joined by Kyle. Before we get started, please make sure to head over to our website, aptcapitalgroup.com, and grab our free Passive Investor's Guide. Also, if you're interested in learning more about what we do, you can schedule a call with Kyle on our website as well. All right, now time to get into our show. Join us at the Asset Management Virtual Summit on September 24th through October 4th. It's a 14-day content-packed event for multifamily operators and asset managers with over 1,000 attendees and over 30 amazing speakers. You will hear from experts about investor relations, maximizing revenue, building systems, KPIs, and so much more. Go to amsummit2020.com to grab your free ticket. Discover the best asset management strategies all in one place. We'll see you at the Asset Management Virtual Summit. On the show today, we have Jerome Myers here with us. Hi, Jerome. How's it going? Great. How are you? Thanks for asking. We are doing well. Thanks for being here. Well, before we get started, here's a little bit about Jerome. Jerome leads the Myers Development Group, LLC, which focuses on buying broken apartment building businesses and using innovative thinking and solid execution strategies to optimize the operational efficiency of the business. Currently, Jerome is asset manager for about 90 units and 90,000 square feet of workforce housing across Virginia and North Carolina. When not actively working on his personal portfolio, Jerome coaches other real estate investors on his methods of multifamily investing. Nice. So it sounds like we're all going to learn a thing or two today. So let's have you start by telling the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you currently do. Yeah, so I'm a corporate America dropout, like a lot of other real estate investors. I uh, built a $20 million business in my last corporate job. And after laying people off two years in a row, I said I wasn't going to do that anymore. I've got a background in engineering and project management. And so our company was responsible for taking overhead lines and moving them underground to improve the reliability of the electrical system. I grew up the son of a soldier and a stay-at-home mom. And so you know, I don't have a silver spoon story. Um, we just kind of built everything, first-generation college graduate. And so we just kind of built everything from the ground, man. It's been really exciting. Part of the reason why we are in the space that we're in with doing joint ventures instead of syndication. Awesome. Well, congrats so far on your success. That's awesome. Let's get into uh, joint ventures here. We're going to talk about a little joint venture stuff. Can you start by telling us what a joint venture is? Yeah. So a joint venture is when you form a business with some of your buds, at least that's the way we've been doing it. It is this in the syndication model as well, where, you know, we just have a GP, we just don't have a bunch of other people on the plane. And so the way I like to describe a joint venture is being a fighter jet pilot. You're on the jet and everybody has an active role. There aren't any passengers. When you compare it with a syndication, think about it like a jumbo jet. You have the pilot, you have a co-pilot, you got stewards and stewardess. 
And then you've got all the passengers on the plane, which would be the limited partners in that model. And so that's how we differentiate between joint ventures and uh, syndications and all of them. Okay. And how did you come across joint ventures and learn about them um, first? I didn't know any better. So I didn't go through any formal real estate training, right? And so when I thought about doing this business the first time, it was like, hey, let's just form a business and go buy a building. And so that's what we did. It wasn't until after the fact that I started doing a ton of research and realized that this wasn't the way that everybody does it. And with the popularity of syndications more recently, I think more people lean that way because they feel like they can get to scale faster. Okay. And so tell us about your first joint venture. What was the deal? How did it go? How was it structured? Yeah. So after going to Tim Banks again, turned away because I didn't have experience in multifamily investing. I got the opportunity to partner with the guy who came to one of my flip houses and he was like, Hey, I'm trying to buy this building. And I was like, man, I tried to buy that four or five months ago. He was like, well, I'm going to buy it. I was like, please don't leave me out. Like I didn't have experience. That was the reason why you got the experience. Let me join you on the deal. He's like, well, what are you going to bring in cash? I said, well, let's look at the deal and then we'll figure that part out. Needless to say, he didn't need me. So he went on and did his own thing. Fortunately, the, owner didn't accept his offer. And so he came back and talked to one of my partners. He's like, hey, I want you to come in this deal, be the general contractor. He's like, oh, that's the one Jerome was talking about. And he said, I'm not doing the deal unless Jerome's in the deal. And so I was able to get into the partnership. Wow. So it started out as three guys and then the broker decided to come in and then we had a property manager also come into the deal. And it was the five of us. It was super heavy value add. We took rents from 695 to 1195 on that deal did everything from the roof down to landscaping in the parking lot. And we did everything on the inside, including adding washers and dryers and a bathroom on the first floor and taking out walls. Awesome. And do you still have that property today? We do. Yes. Okay. So are you a buy and hold guy with your joint ventures or is this eventually selling in five or 10 years? Everything's for sale, right? It's just a matter of if somebody wants it more than we do. We will hold these things as long as, you know, they're operating the way we would like for them to operate. We do want to season them so that people see that we've got a pretty stable operating history. We feel like you get a stronger valuation when you do that when you go to market versus finishing it and then trying to sell it immediately. Okay. And so have you refinanced? Is Do you ever take a look at refinancing and then just holding on for long term? Yeah, so that's what actually happened on this property. We completed the construction and then the bank, we use community banks for most of our projects. They refinanced it and we were able to get some of our equity back. Okay, awesome. Can you talk about how those are structured with the bank as far as the loans? You know, agency versus local banks are definitely different on how they structure loans, maybe recourse versus non-recourse. Yeah, so everything that we've done so far has been a recourse loan with the community bank. The long-range strategy for stuff that we're going to keep is to go into agency debt and do seven or 10-year debt. We like that model a lot. What we've learned is if they're, by seeing other operators make this mistake, if there's potential to sell it within the first five years, then putting that debt on it that has the prepayment penalties and the yield maintenance can make it cost prohibitive on the backside. And so we've been staying in the recourse of debt because of that. And there's one property in particular that we were going to sell in May or June of this year. We decided that, I think we've decided that we're just going to refinance it into a 10-year loan and just hold the thing because we've renovated just about all the units. 
we've been able to bump rents by about $150 a month there from when we took over. So it just makes a ton of sense to just get all of our equity back out on that deal, redeploy that capital, but still enjoy the cash flow, but be in a really long permanent solution. So when you do refinance them, do you refinance them into agency or do you use the local bank and still go non-recourse or go recourse? Yeah, it depends on if we want to keep it or not. And so we've gotten to that place on this deal where we're probably going to keep this property. And so we'll go non-recourse. If we think we may want to sell it because market timing is strong, then we'll keep it in the recourse debt just because we want to be able to get out of it. We haven't seen a bunch of penalties or other kind of carve-outs for that community bank. Okay. And then for the listeners that don't know the difference between recourse and non-recourse, can you just explain that real quickly? Yeah. If you're smart, you won't sign a loan where you're 100% responsible for the entire loan if you only own a percentage of the deal. I wasn't that smart in the first deal. But with the recourse debt, you have your personal assets at risk if something happens at the property. Typically, if your loan amount is under 750 what I've heard and seen in a lot of places, but most people just call it a million dollars, you're able to get non-recourse debt where the property is all that the bank has in order to settle the debt, except for the bad bar carve-outs, which those, depending on who you're dealing with, can transition into recourse debt pretty easily. So if you just want the property to be responsible for itself. You want to buy a bigger, more expensive deal with more cash flow. If you are going with the smaller properties, you're probably going to have to have some form of a personal guarantee. And it can be up to the entire amount of the loan or the part that you own. What types of properties are you looking for to kind of protect your downside since you are signing recourse debt? You know, obviously your personal assets are on the line. So what type of properties do you look for? So for us, there is no difference in what we look for. We're not any more conservative or less conservative, whether it's a recourse or non-recourse loan. We always have full intention to make the payment back. And so we're not hedging our bets or changing our risk profile. And so what do we look for? We look for things where we feel like we can bump rents for over $100 per month in the first two years. We look for workforce housing. That's what we really love. We want to house nurses, firefighters, um, teachers. And if we can, you know, help those folks out, I mean, they really make America run. We want to provide them a quality. Yep. Okay. And so going back to joint ventures, are there multiple ways to structure a joint venture or is there typically just one, you know, standard way? What does that typically look like? Yeah. So the way that we do it is some form of an LLC from a tax designation. It's an LLC with the partnership designation. Some people mess that part up when they forgot the paperwork, but you really want to designate it as a partnership. And that's just the way that we've always done it. There's some folks who may do it with an LP structure with the like kind of like limited partners. But when I left corporate America, one of the things that I missed most was having teammates or people I was working with. And so this gives me opportunity to have co-workers with a true vested interest, right? We go buy a deal, everybody's responsible for the performance of the property. And so if I call people with a problem serving it from my asset management role, they're paying attention and interested in solving the problem. I haven't been interested in having people just put their money in and wait for me to bring back the rewards. These things are wild animals. There's some interesting situations that come up and I enjoy the thought process and ideating with other folks and 
you know, the majority of people I will work with are engineers or have some form of advanced business degree. So it's really opportunity for them to shine and be creative and problem solving. Okay. And so in a typical syndication model, you know, most people go with that model or the people who are going with that model are doing it because they can't raise enough capital to purchase a larger building. And so they bring in limited partners to help with the down payment and, you know, funding the renovations and things like that. So how do you get around, you know, bringing in capital? Is it just the five guys, they all bring in equal capital or how is that all structured? Everybody doesn't bring equal capital. I mean, it's just some basically what you're able to bring, right? Some people may bring more sweat. Other people that bring capital is just depending on their financial situation. I've got, you know, people in deals who are close to 50. I have other people that are not quite in their 30s. And it's just really what can you bring to the table? What can you contribute? We do attribute ownership based on, you know, roles that people fulfill as well as capital contributed. But we do expect everybody to bring money. This I don't believe that real estate is a no money, especially multifamily real estate is a no money proposition. If you're going to operate a business, you've got to bring some money to the table, put that at risk in order to create that cash flow. And so, you know, we look to work with people that have some money to invest. That's part of the criteria. Yep. And does everyone have an active role in this? Are they all making decisions on, you know, the renovations and the business plan and things like that? How are those divvied up when you're doing a joint venture? Yeah, so we'll put together a plan. People will participate along the process, right? You have all your pre-closed items, such as a due diligence walk, going through the documents, creating models. And so people will participate in all that. We'll argue assumptions and make sure that everybody's in agreement with the plan that we're going in with. And then, you know, you've got interactions with the property manager. There'll be issues that come up along the way where you need to meet and make a decision. And we participate in those. We do a quarterly call we discuss the performance and talk about the path forward. And, you know, as I was stumbling earlier on, like we're going through that right now with this property, what is the path forward? We hit our NOI projections for year three already, and we're only one, 18 months into the property. So do we want to refinance? Do we want to sell? And, you know, we're still trying to work through that. And so we've got follow-up calls to work through those issues. And so, you know, that is the beauty of it from my perspective. It's the opportunity to have those discussions with really smart people who have a vested interest. Yeah, makes sense. Let's see, what are some mistakes that you need to avoid when you're setting up a joint venture? So if you don't make sure that your values are aligned before you get into the deal, you're in for a rude awakening. The one thing that's more clear in a joint venture than a syndication is you're getting married. Right. You're tying your financial future to your partners. And so one of my favorite illustrations is a boat where there's a hole in one end of the boat. There's two guys near the hole. And then on the other end of the boat, there's two guys just kind of pointing and saying, hey, we're glad that hole isn't in our end of the boat. The fact of the matter is the whole boat's going to sink if everybody's not rolling up their sleeves and figuring out ways to get the water out of the boat. And so you want to partner with folks who are fully engaged and committed to making sure that whatever needs to happen will happen to get your boat from one place to the next. And it could be rowing, it could be shoveling out water, whatever it is, you've got to make sure that you guys have that alignment. And so alignment of values is probably the hardest lesson I learned, especially in the first deal, because I did it with folks that I didn't know all that well. And it turned out that our values weren't aligned. We've been able to work through that stuff, but I think there was a ton of friction that we had that wasn't actually necessary had we had some other discussions earlier on. 
And the only other thing I would add there is just make sure that everything's in writing. You're going in and everybody's putting their best face forward when things get stressful or you hit a hiccup or a bump. You want those things outlined or how you're going to handle them. If you're going to sell a property, you want to know how many people have to agree that you're going to sell a property. If you're going to fire the asset manager, you want to know how many people have to agree that the asset manager needs to be fired. You want to have all those things well documented so that you're just going back to what everybody agreed to when times were good. People kind of forget. I think they have short-term memory or some form of amnesia when things get ugly and emotions rise. And so you want to always go back when you have those cooler heads. Yep. Makes sense. What are the size properties that you're taking down with these joint ventures? Yeah. So we look for stuff between 10 and 50 right now. We're going to expand that a little bit and go to 75. We are currently working on a joint venture for a 120 development deal. And so it just really depends. But what we've done so far, actually closed has been between the 10 and 50. Okay. Do you feel that joint ventures limit you at all versus a syndication if let's just say there's a 200 unit opportunity? I'm not pursuing the 200 unit opportunities. I think there's a lot of guru groups around the country that are going all over the country looking for those. I see a tremendous opportunity in the 100 and less space. If you think, hey, there's 50 200 unit buildings in a particular town, and then you think about how many 20 units are available in that same town, it mushrooms. The level of sophistication for the operators in that smaller size is also a little bit less. And so I'm able to negotiate better deals. And I guess the last thing I will offer is, you know, the majority of people who are trying to buy those deals that I would consider myself competing with are like the doctors, attorneys, dentists, and, you know, their chair side or they're in court. I do this full time, right? And so I get to see the deal first. I get to make the offer first. And there's been a number of deals that we've been able to buy without anybody else being able to make an offer. And so for us, that gives us a competitive advantage. And so we're niching the smaller workforce housing properties and renovating them because they haven't been renovated and allowing people to enjoy you know, a nice, clean, safe, suitable place to live. Yeah, I agree. There's more opportunity in the under 100 unit space. There's less competition and less sophisticated competition for sure. What are you doing for things like payroll or on-site staff? Do you bulk them together or are you the person that's kind of self-managing it all? No, I don't believe in managing yourself. I'm terrible. I've got a bleeding heart. I told you I left corporate America because I had to leave people off. Right. Right. So if we had a pregnant lady in one of our units who decided that she was going to stop working, which meant that she didn't have any income, and we had to evict her because she didn't pay rent for two months. Right. I mean, it was sad and it sucked, but the fact of the matter was like it's a business and we have to treat it like a business. And so we have third party property management. They specialize in handling these types of properties. Early on, we brought in a property manager who was used to doing single family homes thinking, hey, you can handle this, too. Wasn't the case. The cost was just way off. And, you know, I ended up having to do run a lot of renovations myself. Unfortunately, I'm a licensed contractor. And so in that, I learned what things cost, got pretty clear about what needed to happen in each unit. And it helps with the performance on the front end. But when I got the right property manager in place, he could do it for the same cost I was doing it for. And so that would freed me up from day-to-day operations to, and I could go pursue more deals. And I think that's a winning model get the right property manager in place, execute the business plan, 
and you go find more deals. That's what's working for us. Yep. Anything else about joint ventures we didn't touch on you want to share? No, I mean, I think it's counterintuitive. It's not as sexy as syndications and having people wire you money that you've never met and building this cool platform, but it allows us to get deals done. I think we are able to be a little more selective. I guess that's one point worth talking about, right? If you've got everybody, you say you've got five guys together, you're doing a deal and you decide that, hey, we want to make a bigger social impact on this property because of what it may do to the stuff surrounding it. You can make that decision pretty easily. In the syndication, you've got to deliver that preferred return that a lot of people commit to. And there isn't a whole lot that you can do to have conversation around that. And, you know, one of my guys, one of my key principals, James Bryant, he's all about doing good while doing well. He said, if I just wanted to make profit, I'd just put my money in the stock market and let it go. Here, I can actually improve the community and make a profit. And that is why, you know, he pulled money out of the stock market and stopped aggressively paying down his mortgage. He wanted to do good in the community in addition to making some money on the money that's invested. And so we like that. I guess one other thing that I think is pretty profound is, you know, with these joint ventures, because the properties are a little bit smaller, I think on a percentage basis, you're able to get more aggressive returns. Because the operators aren't as sophisticated, you're able to juice the NOI and get a higher bump in NOI which drives that valuation up, which I think everybody's looking for. And so when you do exit, you're able to create a bigger profit. And so for us, we think that makes a ton of sense. Yep, makes sense. All right, Lolita is going to take us into our final four questions. Are you ready? I don't know. Those go fast. Here we go. (laughs) (laughs) Right, Jerome, here we go. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by asset protection attorney, Wayne Patton. We all spend a lot of time thinking about ways to make more money, but how much time have you spent thinking about legal strategies to protect your wealth? Whether you're a professional, an investor, or an entrepreneur, you are at risk of being targeted in a lawsuit. Wayne is an attorney who specializes only in asset protection strategies like the use of offshore trusts. If you'd like to learn more about how you can protect your assets, visit mwpadden.com or assetprotection.law. Mention this podcast and Wayne will waive his customary $750 initial consultation fee. Again, the website is mwpatten.com or assetprotection.law. Or you can call Wayne at 877-727-1092. Call now and get protected today. What is the one tool you use in real estate investing that you could not do without? Excel. Okay. Can you tell us a story about your biggest mistake in real estate investing and what is the main takeaway for our listeners? So on my first deal I led on my own pursuit was I forgot. I modeled the taxes as $1,000 for the year and they were 10000 And <laughs> that was a huge surprise. Add on top of that, we closed right after the taxes were due. And I thought the attorney paid the taxes at closing. I get a late notice in January of the next year saying, why haven't you paid the taxes? And so when I went back and looked at the HUD, I thought they took the same amount of money from me and the seller. And then when I paid the taxes, they took the money from the seller and gave me a credit, which left me responsible for paying the whole bill. But I didn't pay it until late. So that was disappointing because I thought I was pretty good about it. 
All right. What is it that you need to do now to grow your life to the next level? To grow my life to the next level, become a better person, right? Like it all starts with me. I, I believe in the law of the leadership led and the business is only going to grow as much as the leader of that business is grown. So working really intensely on myself, working on my health, working on my knowledge and keeping my saw sharp. And, you know, I, I think my business will grow as I grow. Love it. And finally, Jerome, where can people find out more about you? Yeah, so we've got a free four-step guide that talks about why we like joint ventures at our website, MyersMethods.com. And then if you want to connect with me personally, I'm on LinkedIn. Last name is spelled M-Y-E-R-S, and I'm the only one in Greensboro, North Carolina. Well, that was so great. Thanks for sharing your expertise with all the listeners today, and we really enjoyed it and appreciate you being on with us. I appreciate you guys. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jerome. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes and leave a rating and written review to help us grow and reach more listeners. You can also go to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Group on Facebook so you can connect with Kyle and Lolita and ask your questions that you want them to answer on the show. Subscribe too so that you can get the latest episodes. Lastly, to stay updated, head on over to limitless-estates.com and sign up for the newsletter. If you're interested in partnering with Kyle and Lolita, sign up on the Contact Us page so you can talk to them directly. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in again next week for another episode.